0: Anchored is a production of the Classic Learning Test based in Annapolis, Maryland. Reconnecting knowledge and virtue. Visit us at cltexam.com. Hello. Welcome back to the CLT offices. We're glad you're here. Today, we're excited to have Dr. Pano Canales, President of St. John's College in Annapolis, If this is your first time joining us, I'd like to take a little bit of time to explain what Anchored is. This is a program where our CEO, Jeremy Tate, engages in conversations with leading thinkers on topics at the intersection of education and culture. As always, we at CLT greatly appreciate your feedback, so please rate and review this episode and send any questions or comments to anchored at cltexam.com. Don't forget, the next CLT 10 is coming up on April 28, 2021. This is an excellent opportunity to gain national recognition and a $2,500 scholarship. Registration and further details can be found on our website, cltexam.com. Now, without further ado, let's get on to the conversation.
1: Welcome back to Anchor, the official podcast of the Classic Learning Test. Uh, Today we have a very exciting guest, uh, the president of St. John's College uh, right here in Annapolis, President Pano Canolis. Uh, Pano, welcome to the program. Thank you very, very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Pono, tell us uh, a bit about yourself and how you came to, to serve in your current role as president of St. John's College. So this is my fourth year now at St. John's. In some ways, it
2: feels like I've just arrived. and In other ways, it feels like it's been a lifetime. Um, I arrived here um, through the vicissitudes of, of chance and I would say through Providence. I had spent my career in higher education, uh, mostly as a professor, did my PhD at University of Chicago in a program called the Committee on Social Thought, which is a mm. interdisciplinary program, uh, but really well known for its focus on um, on political philosophy and also on literature. And those were my two fields of study. I wrote on Shakespeare. I've always loved Shakespeare. And then ended up launching my teaching career um, first at Stanford and then University of San Diego as a professor of of English and drama and um, doing some work in the theater and um, teaching actors, but also teaching um, literature and literary history and um, loved all that. But then I found myself an opportunity to become a dean of an honors college called Christ College of Valparaiso University which is some sort of great books honors college a really fantastic place and and much of my teaching had always been centered on teaching broadly across what we consider classic texts um and I'd taught in honors programs elsewhere that had a kind of uh, you know what we think of as a classical curriculum great books curriculum so so this was the the natural gravitational pull of my career so I was at Christ College, and I was enjoyed that very, very much. And uh, that gave me a taste of what it would be like to be an administrator, to be somebody who had responsibility for mm. um, such programs. And so when the opportunity to join St. John's was posed to me in 2017, I always thought this was the most interesting and kind of amazing institution from afar, but I'd never been officially connected. I jumped at the opportunity, and I was really thrilled and honored. i I. I really am remarkably unqualified and unprepared to be a college president. So like most things in life, it's been a lot of improvisation and uh just a lot of elbow grease. But um but it it, it has been a
1: blessing for me. Well, what a unique college to arrive to. I mean, St. John's College in Annapolis. I mean it's kind of the original and, and certainly the most famous great books college. Um, how did St. John's College come to be St. John's College? And was it, was it always this great books program? I know it originally founded as King William School. Is that right? Uh, in the 1600s, maybe the third yeah. oldest uh, college in America. Yeah. So I would say there's sort of two
2: St. John's Colleges. Um, there's the one that existed for the bulk of its history. It started in 1696. The third college founded in the United States Um and uh, it was Harvard, William and & Mary, and then St. John's here. Originally, St. John's was actually founded to be a public school. It was meant to be the University of Maryland uh, Western Shore, mm. and on the opposite side of the Chesapeake Bay, uh, what is now Washington College, was meant to be University of Maryland Eastern Shore, but that it didn't quite play out that way. For most of its history, St. John's was a The sort of archetypal, you know, red brick, ivy-covered liberal arts college that you find all across the eastern seaboard had a rather successful and august history. Um, But in the early 20th century, St. John's took a kind of radical turn, a revolutionary turn um, with the nascent Great Books Movement in the country at that time, um, people like Mortimer Adler um, and fellows at places like Columbia and University of Chicago starting these Great Books programs. St. John's at that time was experiencing financial troubles, as colleges do from time to time. And uh, there was a change in uh, leadership. And the new leaders at that time, Scott Buchanan and Stringfellow Barr, uh, inspired by the Great Books movement, decided to completely revamp the curriculum of St. John's College to return it to fully great books and, um, let's say, a curriculum fully invested in in the study of the great books of the Western tradition, although sympathetic to other traditions. And sort of returning to the roots create a kind of revolutionary place that was intended to um, be egalitarian and democratic. They really believed that the country and the world were in crisis in the 1930s, and you can imagine why. And that what was needed to obviate this crisis was to share the learning of the Western tradition with as broad a swath of the population as possible, Mm -hmm. to open our doors not just to kind of an elite class of people who had customarily been the sort of Oxbridge types that had access to classical learning, but to make it really an egalitarian and democratic place. So St. John's created its Great Books curriculum, which is roughly 200 books Across all fields of knowledge, read chronologically over four years. All students study the same course of study, begin in ancient Greece, end in the 20th century. We're well, not to the 21st century yet; that's too new. And it, you know, what looks like one of the most traditionalist and kind of old-fashioned courses of study in you know in the United States was actually intended to be radical. And, and so, I would say the se- the second founding of St. John's was in 1937 when we instituted the new program of study that we have
1: now. I've got to ask, and I I dearly love St. John's. We're here in Annapolis, just a few blocks away. Uh, At times, nearly half of CLT staff has been uh, graduates of St. John's College. Um, I have found, especially running a startup company, uh, that graduates of St. John's are some of the most employable uh, people imaginable. Uh, They can think outside of the box. Uh, They listen well. Um, what what is it about St. John's, or what is it about a liberal arts education? Uh, you, you don't think of it translating into the the workplace. It's not even designed to do that, uh, but somehow it seems to form people in a way that that other institutions aren't really doing anymore. Can you can you speak into that? Um, sure. First of all, I'm I'm
2: thrilled that so many of our graduates work for CLT, since there's such affinity between the things that you do and and what the college does. Um, so I think there's that natural affinity. Uh, but on the other hand, I think St. John's graduates are poised for um, success sort of in any any endeavor that they decide to undertake. And the reason it goes, it goes to the kind of roots of what our education is and what education should be. Um, The idea that education is some sort of pre-professional training that you go to this place called college and you narrowly study uh, a particular professional field or discipline and that kind of prepares you for success in life. Um, th- that, that, that to me is I would call desiccated model of education, right? The purpose of education is to allow human beings to develop their capacities, mm-hmm. um, their, their, their possibilities as, as robustly as possible. And to do that, you have to think of education in the fullest possible sense and human beings in the broadest possible sense. So a liberal education, what is a liberal education? It's called liberal, as we know, because liberal is rooted in the idea of freedom, Mm -hmm. liberty. And it's an education that was intended and is intended to free human beings. How do you free human beings? You allow them to develop their um, intellective capacity so that they can understand what is true about themselves and what's true about the world. And when you understand what's true about themself, about yourself and about the world, then you find the pathways forward in life that you're going to flourish in. And so a lot of it is about self discovery. I mean, this is gonna, maybe this sounds a little um, a touchy feely or that. We're not a very touchy feely place. This is a very rigorous education, Yeah, um, but it's an education that turns one inward so that one can identify uh, core strengths and core abilities, and, and, and learn what one's vocation should be. Learn where your abilities and strengths match the needs of the world. So I think that's one of the reasons our graduates are successful. They understand themselves as they embark upon their life path. I think another reason is liberal education trains one um, it, it, broadly. It's not about content. Even though we have our great books it's about what we do in the study of those great books that trains the human, mm-hmm. um, the, our ratiocinative powers, right? And so when we study, for example, music, everybody here studies music. All freshmen learn how to sing in the freshman course. Everybody participates in it. Our fight song, if you will, is Palestrina's Siku Um, you know, <laughs> and all the students learn this. We sing it on occasions. Um, We study music, not just to appreciate music, but to understand the mathematical principles that underlie music Mm. and to understand the physics of music. You know, what is a vocal cord and how does that, how does that stretch according to mathematical principles and how does that produce a kind of ordered sound? Um, So mathematics and music go together. You know, the study of language and, and the study of politics go together, right? How we understand language in the world helps us understand how human societies. Um, can come together or fall apart. So a liberal education um, intersects different bodies of knowledge in a way that prepares people to be fully developed and fully prepared for what comes next. Everybody in the educational world talks about things like you know, critical thinking and communication and all that as if these were like apps that you get on a phone. Like I learned critical thinking and you sort of put it on your phone and I have communication on your phone. Um, Critical thinking is not an end in itself. It emerges from the fullest possible study of of the human condition. Um, But those who follow this course of study are prepared to be critical thinkers. They're ready to collaborate, to communicate. They're creative in their approach to the world. (laughs) So when we unleash them on the world, um, they are radically successful. They know who they are and they have the meta capabilities that one would need to really pursue um, any line of uh, of
1: professional life. But I I wanna transition and pick your brain about the cost of college. Uh, St. John's has been a leader here uh, shortly after you came in, maybe a year or two after your first semester. St. John's kind of led the way and they did a big tuition reset. uh, I believe dropped uh, the price from 52,000 a year all the way down to 35,000 or so. Can you can you speak to our audience? You know, we've got some some listeners some parents uh, who are tuning in who maybe have big families. They love St. John's College and maybe a bit intimidated at the sticker price, not just of St. John's, but all of the the colleges out there. Uh, Can you speak about what you did, how you did it at St. John's, such a dramatic cost reduction and what you would uh, advise parents? Sure thing.
2: So it, this, this kind of returns us back to the, the I would say, the refounding of, of the college in 1937 and the egalitarian principles that are at mm-hmm. the core of the college. Um, you know, we looked at ourselves a few years ago and we said, if, if we're meant to be a college open to all and accessible to all, if we want everybody who wants to be a Johnny to be a Johnny, how could we possibly be priced at $52,000 a year? which is so much more than most families could ever dream of spending. I mean, that's $200,000 over time. Yeah. And that's just tuition. That's, you know, how could we possibly have this price? Well, it is true that it costs over $50,000 a year to educate a St. John student. I mean, we, we have a, a labor intensive um, educational experience in that all of our classes are tiny. Um, most of our resources are put into the classroom. But we, you know, we hire wonderful teachers, and um, and we want to keep that personalized and intimate approach to education. That's not a cheap thing to do. So we started to challenge ourselves: how how could we push the price the price of our education back to something more affordable while still providing the same education? So first, you know, we started exploring, you know, bringing fifty percent. We ended up at 33%, which is essentially a rollback of an entire decade's worth of increases. And by the way, oh, yeah. we instituted this two and a half years ago. We've kept the tuition at 35000 cents. since. So we haven't been oh, okay. raising tuition year over year. So we figured out we're going to go. And then we said, well, what, how are we going to make up the difference if it costs more than we can actually ask families to contribute? And many, many families are are also receiving financial aid or scholarships and merit aid and that. So um, the differential between what most families pay and the cost of providing education is actually quite stark. Yeah. Um, so in addition to lowering the price, we launched a $300 million campaign uh, called the Free Minds Campaign, knowing that if we could uh, create um, a, a, a deep enough foundation of um, in our endowment of, of philanthropy, that that would cover the gap between the cost and what families can afford. Uh, to put it roughly $300 million is a, over $300,000 per student at St. John's. Uh, we started less than three years ago, our campaign, and we've raised 240 million towards that 300 million already. So the affordability piece had two, two, two components, lower the tuition as far as we could go, and then raise money to fill the gap in and also to cr- create even more opportunities for financial aid and, and scholarship. Mm. And it's worked phenomenally well. Uh, we are even, where we're, uh, we're thriving in terms of our enrollment and, uh, we are financially uh, very stable. What we've learned is that, um, there are different ways to think about, um, financing college education yeah. and our move to do this. I mean, there was a, uh, cascade of, of media coverage, starting with the New York Times, which called us the most contrarian college in America for doing this. And then, I saw that, yeah, you know, every other media source you could imagine. It's really moved the bar. Um, at the last president's conference I was at for college, for colleges, I was in a session with quite a number of presidents um, speaking about college affordability. And the sentiment in the room wasn't, um, should colleges lower their tuition, but how soon and how fast and how much can all colleges do that? Mm. And so St. John's has really played a leadership and pivotal role in changing that conversation, which you know, we're, we're delighted to have been a catalyst for that.
1: You know, Pana, one of uh, the St. John's students that CLT employs is actually an international student from Uganda. And I was chatting with her about why St. John's, and, and she said her parents wanted her to have the very best education possible. And they ended up at St. John's. And and we're seeing at CLT as we're expanding in this kind of education rooted in the great books, rooted in the classics, uh, truly a liberal arts education, uh, is maybe increasingly appreciated uh, abroad, but not necessarily in the United States. Um, can you speak to that?
2: I was in Korea, uh, let's let's say about two years ago, um, and back when human beings could travel. And, <laughs> um, and, and I was in Korea, I was invited there by the uh, the the minister of education was hosting a symposium on Korean higher education and its future, uh, and and whether or not the kind of sub theme of the symposium was should Korean should the Korean higher education system bring in um, liberal arts as a kind of component to their study? They're very STEM oriented mm-hmm. right now. Yeah, and uh, so they had asked me to address a crowd there, and um, but there were a couple really fascinating things. First of all. St. John's is huge in Korea. I, I didn't know this. I got, we have a lot of Korean students, but I got there and I was, you know, sort of mobbed by journalists, like their, you know, their equivalent of the New York Times, you know, interviews and and television and all that, you know, the famous St. John's College was there. And I thought that's really interesting that, that in Korea, the, the kind of, um, you know, uh, the hallmark great books institution in the United States had such a profile. And I, Ended up traveling all over Korea. I was invited to speak at different places and different events and schools. So that was interesting. And I and I asked. I said, you know, I was having a conversation with an academic there at one of the events, and I sort of was just curious. I said, you know, there's a, a wonderful tradition in East Asia, intellectual tradition, uh, literary tradition, artistic tradition, philosophical tradition, that is indigenous and and um, and you know worth high esteem. Said, so why why would people in Korea be interested in a, a school like St. John's or programs that, that were really oriented towards the Western tradition? And this guy looked at me, he goes, he looked at me like I was asking the most ridiculous question. He goes, because Plato, Aristotle goes, they're not the Western tradition. They're the world's tradition.
1: Wow.
2: They're the world's tradition. And so they see what we do as as complementary to everything that they do. And they're mm-hmm. incredibly eager to dive into the very text that are at the core of, of the Western tradition, not at the expense of other things, but I think, you know, um, along alongside, parallel to the other things that they study. And they don't have their own local liberal arts tradition as well. So they're learning about the model of liberal arts from us and then thinking about what the content of a liberal arts education should be. And I think that applies to other places as well. I mean, I've been, in the course of my time here, you know, I've been in China and Singapore and India and Australia and uh, across Europe and uh, in the Middle East, um, talking to people, um, meeting with institutions about liberal arts education, talking about St. John's. And I think that um, there is a, a, a general appetite for um, turning to the, the, what has been the, the, the best that it's ever been written, the, mm. the greatest works of art, the most profound thought that we've had, globally, and that incorporating wherever you are in the world, incorporating the the sorts of things that we study at St. John's, and that you test at CLT, incorporating those things into uh, curricula, into the academic experience, is seen as absolutely essential. So, you know, why is that not the case in the United States? That's a, I think that's a different question. I, I don't know that it is entirely true that it's not the case here. I mean, there is, as you know, as we all know, there is a surge of interest in classical education at the K-12 through level, Yeah, uh, ma- uh, rapidly growing interest at the, at the uh, collegiate level, honors mm-hmm. programs, honors colleges, new institutions being founded that are oriented around uh, classical education, great books of education. So I would say that while the major key in the U.S. continues to be what we think of as conventional education. I think classical education has become an important and expanding minor key.
1: Very true. Uh, Pano, this is always my favorite question. Uh, we always end an anchored podcast interview with this, the same question. Uh, we we want to know what book, what text has been most formative for you, most influential. Maybe it's a book that you come back to every year.
2: And this is an easy one for me because I do. I mean, I, we, we most of us do have this kind of the, the texts that live in the back of our mind all the time that are kind of our sort of constant companions. And for me, it's Dostoyevsky's mm-hmm. Brothers Karamazov. And I, I'll say why. I think Plato was right in, in, in when he created a kind of icon of the soul with his image of the chariot flying through the mm-hmm. sky. So, so you know, what, what Plato says in the Theatatus is that, you know, and, and he presents this kind of tableau of the soul, and he says the soul is composed of of three components. There's the, There's the intellect, the rational component, there's Thumos, which is kind of our spirited component, the thing that drives us upwards for glory, for higher things. And then there's a the kind of, you know, appetites that we have, um, that are grounded in material, in the material world. Mm-hmm. And his image, which is, you know, a beautiful one is a human being soul is like a flying chariot where the rational component is, is seated in this, in the chariot with its reins on two flying horses. Uh, one Thumos, which is trying to drag. Uh, the chariot upwards and the other the appetites trying to drag the chariot downwards and what the rational soul tries to do is is keep everything under control keep it in line so that you can maintain flight and not you know go you know go into the stratosphere or crash into the earth and i think that i think it's a beautiful and accurate image of of the human of the human being of the human soul i said as a preface to dostoevsky the brothers karamazov i think is a an alternative version of the human soul that plays off of Plato challenges Plato. And I think is maybe even a degree more profound. Um, so in brothers Karamazov, if you'll recall, there are three brothers um, and they each represent one of those parts of Plato's soul. There's Yvonne, who is the, the intellectual, rational, academic. Uh, there's Alexei, who is the spiritual, uh, monkish brother who represents that kind of tribe for higher things, and there's Dimitri, who's you know the the sensualist, the person mm-hmm. who is who's driven the sensual things. And what I the twist that Dostoevsky gives us is that um, he questions who it is that should be in the chariot, who should be in the driver's seat. He really challenged that idea that the intellect, the rational, rational Ivan is not the most admirable person in that in that novel. He's not the one that we're most drawn to. It's generally, Alexei, yeah. and so he he asks us to flip around that that model mm-hmm. and think about whether or not it's our spirited part that that should be in control or can be in control. And so for me, as a as a human being, I have all three of those brothers living in my head all the time because I think those are three representations, three avatars of my myself. You know, I I um, aspire towards higher things. Uh, I have you know. Uh, I I try to develop my intellect like everybody else. I'm subject to the, to the, the the material sensual world. And I feel that pull. So I have moments in life where I'm going, you know, where I'm, I'm full Dimitri, right. I'm sitting in, you know, sitting in a beautiful restaurant with a huge steak in front of me and a gorgeous Barolo. And the only thing I could possibly care about at that point is that meal. It had just the sheer enjoyment of that. And there are other times when, I find myself, you know, uh, turning to things of the spirit, uh, more meditative, um, really focused on on that kind of inner life. And, you know, in the mix is the life of the mind that, that I try to lead as well. And, and I feel the the pull. But I find that Dostoevsky has reshuffled the categories for uh, for me in a way that, um, like I say, haunts me and, 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 and informs who I am. Pano, is Brothers K is it part of the undergraduate program or the graduate institute? It's, it is part of, uh, part of both, so all of our students read Brothers K, and if they didn't, then I would have made them read it when I got here. So.
1: <laughs> Again, we're here with uh, Dr. Peter Canolos, uh, commonly known as Pano, at St. John's College uh, in Annapolis. Pano, thanks for being here with us today.
2: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, and thanks, everybody, for being part of this.
1: Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening. Please subscribe, and if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share with friends and colleagues. Look forward to having you join us next week. CLT, Reconnecting Knowledge and Virtue.